we continue our time of, of worship around the Word, please take your Bible and turn to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, Malachi the prophet. We'll be reading and uh, looking through the different applications uh, for this. Let me just begin by saying when Jesus called you and me to be his disciples, he said, follow me. Now, there were some of his and The New Testament says they were his disciples, they were the crowd that was following him when they heard some of the things that Jesus meant by follow me, some of the elements of discipleship, it says that they turned back and no longer walked with him. I dare say that that's not true for the majority of people in this room today, most of you are following him. You're seeking to be his disciple. His goal is that you glorify him. Malachi 1, 5, 4, and 11 says, you shall say, great is the Lord. I hope you've been saying that already as we've been working through this time of worship. Beyond the border of Israel, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, God says, my name will be great among the nations, not just the borders of Israel, but beyond that. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. That's God's calling on your life if you're a follower of Christ, to glorify Him. I said it last week, I'll probably say it um, maybe next week in the context of the messages. It goes back to the wedding ceremony when a husband and wife stand before the Lord, they stand before the congregation, and they say to each other, forsaking all others for you alone. And that's what you said when you said, I'm going to follow Christ. So how exactly do you glorify Him? These two slides, let's just look at them and you. Who were once alienated and hostile in mind. Wow, what a contrast this morning. I didn't sense any hostility or alienation in mind in your worship. Doing evil deeds, He has now, this is why, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ. That's how you glorify him. Let's read on. Mature in Christ, it says a little bit later in verse 28. And if there is a a purpose, the outcome of what we do here at Heritage, that's it. To make sure that every person, as much as we can, is mature in Christ for those whom he foreknew, jumping to Romans, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, if you're here today, young or old, 
you know that your job is to glorify God. Our job together as the people of God, we are to glorify God as a church. How do you do that? Like this, we present ourselves. And He is making us increasingly, progressively, holy and blameless, mature in Christ, transformed into the image of His Son. And you seek that. You seek that if you're a follower of Christ. It's not that we never sin. It's not that we are sinless. But like someone once said, it is that we sin less. Obeying and loving Him grows out of a changed heart. Malachi 3.3 says this, and that's kind of the theme of these two weeks going through the book of Malachi. This is the Lord Jesus. He will sit. He is sitting right now, today, as a refiner and as a purifier of silver. That's what He's like. He's going to turn up the heat in some lives here today, but here is the reason, and He will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, You and I are priests unto God in a New Testament sense and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to their Lord. He is refining you, whether you know it or not. In the things that you're going through, in being here today, in allowing the Word to wash over you, He is refining you as with a refiner's fire. Now, why in the world are we looking at Malachi? The last book of the Old Testament, the the precursor to that period of time, the last words of prophecy, and, and then jumping ahead 400 years to the Gospels, and this time period, right after Malachi, to the coming of John the Baptist on the scene, is sometimes called... I'm going to try to say it slowly so I can enunciate it, the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period, time between the Old Testament and New Testament, 400 years. Now, some of you have studied this, and you you know what's coming next. Some of you, you may not be aware of, of the historical perspective here. Sometimes this of here, sometimes this is called the 400 years of silence because there was no spoken prophetic word. And it's true. It's true that there was no new revelation. But please hear me because this is an application that is absolutely up to date for you and for me today as followers of Christ True, there was no new revelation, but God is always anything but silent or inactive. Don't read a well-meaning commentator on this passage of Scripture and think that God 
wasn't engaged in the lives of his people. He was, I'm not going to get into all of the history of the coming of the, the Greek states on, on the scene and Alexander and the defeat of Persia and then Rome coming into play. I'm not going to go through all of that, but listen, God was sovereignly orchestrating things that would lead to the coming of the Messiah. There was no new prophetic word. Listen, folks. But there was the word already given to God's covenant people. You must get a handle on this so that you can can know how we are to handle the word of God. And even so-called prophetic words. Hebrews reminds us, Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers. This is pointing back to what he did all through the Old Testament by the prophets. And then he jumps forward, the writer of Hebrews does. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Folks, look at that for a minute. That is so incredibly significant. God spoke through the prophets. God has spoken through His Son. He has spoken through the apostles and the deposit of the New Testament Scriptures given to us. Second Peter says it like this, a little different nuance, but I'm going somewhere, and some of you can probably guess where I'm going in saying this as the introduction to this overview of Malachi and how it fits in with the book of Nehemiah. Here is what is true for you today. It was true for the people. It was true for the people during the intertestamental time, during the time that many people call a time of silence. His divine power, listen to this, you you need this. His divine power has granted to us heritage, And we're going to specify even further to the child of God, to the covenant person, man or woman, young person, child of God. Everything, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, how has he done that? Through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. Yeah, but how has he done that? By which he has granted to us and you could put out beside this if you want to, his word, his precious and his very great promises that are found right here in this book, the Bible, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Hey, doesn't that harken back to something we just said a minute ago? Uh, I hardly even know where to start the application of this. The rampant sense among Christians, it's not limited to the United States or Western Christianity, it's global. And there is a rampant sense among believers today. I can see this in pseudo-Christian organizations. Pseudo-Christian. They may look Christian, they may be counted as Christian, but like the Mormons, they are not. 
And I can see it with them. But among people in this church, that's how specific this is, somehow that we must literally today, right now, hear from God as a personal, subjective, extra-biblical experience. God told me. I, I can't tell you through the years as a pastor, being on staff as a church, as a follower of Christ, how many times I have heard that phrase. Sometimes it was followed. Sometimes it was from the pulpit. It was extra biblical. It was a very specific thing. Whether it came true or not didn't seem to bother the people. They just got excited. Oh, we're getting a fresh word from the Lord. Sometimes it was directed to me. Pastor, God told me that you, and then fill in the blank. God told me to tell you. Okay, we, we just read a couple of scriptures. Did you write those down? Go back and look them up and test what I am saying with the scripture. What could, if everything that I need for life and godliness is found in this book, what could somebody tell me about any subject that supposedly God told them that I would need in addition to the words of this book? Do you know the answer to that? Nothing. Anything they say must be measured by the words of this book, and if what they tell me is out of this book, then it's for me, and I need to listen, whether it's a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation or even a word of rebuke. But you and I need nothing else but this book. If I really need their experiences, then watch this. I'm going to be going from here to there, looking for the next fresh word from God. And there are people all over our country, all over the world, that, it, that are doing just that. Someone might say, now, Pastor, you're preaching to us, so therefore, aren't you doing the same thing? Aren't you saying that God, no, no, no. What I am trying to do, I, I hope you get this, is to take the Word of God, read the Word of God. We read it, we hear it sung, we, we express the Word of God, and then I'm trying to, to explain to you and sometimes use illumination, illustrations, to help you understand better the Word of God and how to apply it to your lives, but never, ever, ever would I stand here and tell you God told me in a fresh new sense to tell you something that is extra biblical. You don't need it. If everything you need for life and godliness is found in this book. And if I really believe that I need that extra experience, then what I'm saying, listen to this please very carefully, is that God's word, God's written word, that we have in, that you're holding in your lap, 
or not. Maybe it's in your hand. What we're saying is that God's word is insufficient. Years ago, and I'm old enough to remember, some of you are too, within the denomination that we are now affiliated, the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a thing called the conservative resurgence. It was after I went to seminary. Because when I was in seminary, we felt the effects of liberalism, pragmatism that had, that had taken root through the years. And I think I've shared with you before, I had seminary professors who took part of the Bible as myth. They did not believe sometimes in the miracles and things like that. that that's, that's, now, what I did in seminary, I just, I love seminary. It, it was a, after going to a secular university, wow, where professors prayed before our class. Now, that was different. It was wonderful, but I had to weed, I had to weed out. And so some people became very, very concerned, and there was a thing called the conservative resurgence where they were able to put people into place that, that helped over a period of time bring the denomination to a place of seeing the Word of God as inerrant. That's important. But here's what I fear, and the conservative resurgence has waned. That was in the 80s. It's waned. I believe that what we see in a lot of our churches now, I'm not talking about just SBC, I'm talking about across the board in many churches here in our country and throughout the world, we will say in our statement of beliefs that we believe in the inerrancy of God, but have we maintained the same belief in the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And I'm fearful that the, the tidal wave is already upon us, us, the churches throughout this nation, critical race theory, an absolute threat to the gospel egalitarianism, that's a big word. If you don't know what it means, we don't have time to discuss all of the ramifications of that in this sermon today. But those are the kinds of things that are coming in. And what they show is, oh, the Word of God is really not authoritative there. And it's really not sufficient enough here. That's what was happening to the Jewish nation at the end of Malachi at the end of Nehemiah. You see, Malachi is just a commentary on the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. He preached at the end of the story of Nehemiah. What makes, what makes Malachi truly unique that is that it is one of the only books in the Bible that is a dialogue. You're going to see this. It is a running dialogue where Malachi the prophet, in truth, is telling the people of God, this is what God says. He's speaking in the place of God. Here's what God says, and then the people of God respond. And so there's this give and take. There's this back and forth. Here, here's the scenario. It's been about 100 years since, you remember the story of Nehemiah, since the temple had been rebuilt. And what the people were doing, led by the priests and the Levites. By the way, again, who are the, who are the New Testament Levites and priests? Preachers? 
that's you. But led by, in the Old Testament, the Levites and, and, and the priests, they, listen, they were doing temple service. They were going through the rituals. But it had become just that. It was a ritual. It was rote. It was mechanical. And it lacked the heart. And I, I was trying to visualize this. I, I, maybe it would be easy to do. You know the old saying, you can grow weary in the work, but never grow weary of the work. Have you ever heard that? As a Christian, as a, let's, let's apply it to, to, to Christianity. We, we don't want to grow weary of the worship. Growing weary in the worship? I, I get it sometimes. But that's what was happening to the, to the, to the people of Israel. I, again, last week I was trying to imagine this, that every, every day and then on the Sabbath particularly, the priests showed up and they went through the ritual cleansing and they went into the temple and they flayed the animal sacrifices. I can just see when, when, they, were, when they were cutting Have you ever been, have you ever seen that where live animals are, are killed and, and gutted, clean, flayed, all that? In Turkey, we saw that. We, we got to go to one of the, the, the sacrificial places when they have their, their observance of Korban. We got to see, and, and it was really interesting because the, the cows that were there getting ready to be slaughtered, they all, can an animal understand what's going on? They were bleeding. They were, it was really, it was really weird. And they would come with a knife, bleed them. I, you know, it was messy. I, I can understand maybe in some ways how that the, the ritual sacrifice system could have been a pretty tough thing to go through. But here's what had happened. That's all they were doing. They were just showing up. They were just showing up for worship. Showing up for worship because their parents told them they had to. Why are we going to Sunday school and church? Because that's what we do. It's not a bad answer. It's just an incomplete answer. And they were showing up, going through the motions. Rather, we'll talk about this in a minute, under our three points, we're still in the introduction. Instead of offering a sacrifice of praise, have you ever wondered why it's called a sacrifice of praise for us? Sometimes it is a sacrifice. I get it. But instead of offering the sacrifice of praise, they were offering the scraps of their leftovers. We're not talking about rank idolatry. Now, th this is one of the most interesting transitions of a people. Israel had constantly in their whole experience from the time of Abraham and particularly from the time of Egypt and being delivered from Egypt and going into the land, the one thing they had struggled with was the second commandment. They could not get it out of their system. 
They just loved worshiping idols. They just made an altar ever uh, uh, under every tree. They just made all kinds of totems and ashram and all that kind of stuff, and they were worshiping that. But when they came back from Babylon, that was pretty much broken. Now, watch this, because you and I, here's what happens sometimes in our Christian walk. We have a particular propensity towards sin that is an idol. God gives us the grace to break that sin. And so we're no longer completely captivated like we used to be with idolatry. So they had broken that, but they had become not just negligent, but they had become the offenders of the third commandment. Do you know what the third commandment says? What's the first commandment? One God. Don't have any other gods before me. What's the second commandment? Do you know the Ten Commandments, the ten-finger method? No idols. Now, we say the third commandment is a W, no bad words. No, that's really not what it means. Here's what it says, and here's what it really means. We think it pertains to cussing. And there are different degrees of that. You know, even saying gee or golly, sometimes the heart, that can become a belittling of the name of God. But here's what it really means. You shall not take the name of the Lord. Whenever you see it capitalized, I'll leave that in there, it's Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The third commandment still impacts us today, but it really impacted them then. Then, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, look it up in Blue Letter Bible. Many of you know how to use Blue Letter Bible. Look up the definition. Look up that verse and look up, not right now, always caution you in that. You can do it later, but it's really fascinating. Do you know what the definition of vain is? Empty, nothingness, Malachi writes to the people of God, the covenant people of God, and he writes to us today that we can go through the ritualistic motions of worship and our hearts and our minds are empty of true worship of the living God. What should be the stance of our coming into this place? For This is where we want to apply it. And in your, your life at home and, and at work every day that goes on, it should be going back to look at it again, verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Because I'm a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. Okay, How, are, are you guys tracking? Okay. 
a lot of times as I'm preparing the sermon and writing down and rewriting, and so I, I, try, to, I try to anticipate, okay, what are, they, what are, they get, what are people going to be thinking and all over the map? I can't possibly know what is in your mind right now. Maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing. But I wondered if someone might say, oh, wow, Marty, that is so Old Testament. Do, do, do believers in the New Testament really have that kind of problem? I mean, come on. This is Heritage Baptist Church. We love the Word. We preach the Word. Could we really have that problem? Well, apparently Jesus thought so because he wrote at the very end of the New Testament to several churches. One of those, the first church that he addressed, and one of those, the last church that he addressed. The first church he addressed, which were great churches. They're just not around anymore because of this very thing. He said, you're doing the work to the church at Ephesus. You're doing the stuff. You're showing up. You've got volunteers all over the place. You're, you're just working. You're ferreting out those who have false doctrine. Boy, you're doing some great things, but I, listen, I have, you know what he says. I have this one thing against you, and apparently it's pretty important to Jesus. He said, you have left your first love. To the last church, Again, a great church, Laodicea. Man, they, their budget was made and then some. They were rich. I, they, were, they were making an impact in the world. But guess what? They had grown lukewarm. With all my heart, whether it's another week, or another year, I've got some pretty good genes, not these, genes. My, yeah, DNA, thank you. My biological father is 93, still works. But for the rest of my life, and I hope this is your, 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 your thought, your, your attitude, your heart, I don't want to just show up on Sunday and go through the motions I don't want to lose my first love, which is not the Arkansas Razorbacks, by the way. <laughs> Say a little bit more about that. I don't want, I, church, I don't want you to lose your first love. I don't want you ever to be lukewarm. I don't want us to be lukewarm. And our church as a whole is simply the representation of the individuals and the families and the marriages and the couples that are in this room. We talk about impacting the world and things like that. A lukewarm church, a church that loses its first love, will not. In fact, they'll lose their candle stand. They, they, they will not impact or they will not be a light to the world, and I want us to be a light. This is a dark time. This is a dark time. But rather than just complain about the darkness, we need to be a church that is a light to the world. So, Malachi is a commentary on Nehemiah chapter 13, and we're going to spend two weeks 
going through this and kind of pop out some applications, which we're going to do part one, the rest of this message, and then hopefully, uh, Lord willing, come back part two uh, this, this next week. And then after we take a, a, a brief time away, and Jim will be in the pulpit and he'll be sharing with you. Then we're going to begin a study of First and Second Timothy and Titus. I'm looking forward to bouncing back into the New Testament. I, I kind of love the Old Testament, really, but we need to get back in the New Testament and see what we have there. So look, look at your, your outline. We've got three things that we need to talk about today. And I want to ask this as a question for all of us because I just gave the introduction, which took longer than I thought it would take. Which is, which is normally the case, but bear with me, we're going we're, we're to run through this, okay? Here we go. First question, I want you to personalize this. Am I indifferent to God's love for me? Verses 2 and 3, it says verse 2 there, we'll add verse 3. Right out of the chute, isn't this great? This is stunning. The first statement from God to His people the last words for 400 years before the John, John the Baptist comes, and he says these words, I have loved you. Here's the dialogue portion. Now, watch this. Showered with blessing. God said it. I have loved you. No conditions the people of God back then were a mess, and he still said, I love you. And they were so blind, so callous, so indifferent that they actually said, you know, Lord, I'm not seeing it. You tell us that you love us. How? And I'm telling you, that is a very contemporary dialogue. Your preachers stand up, God loves you. And sometimes you're sitting there knowing what you've been through this last week, month, year, whatever, lifetime. And you're saying, really, Lord? I get it. I'm not going to say anything to anybody because they'll think I'm unspiritual. But deep down in my soul, I'm not even going to say anything to my husband or wife. I'm asking you the question, how? How have you loved me? God answers them when they ask how. How have you loved us? Here's his answer. Is not Esau... Now, this is interesting. Of all the things God could have said about his love for them, what would you have thought that he would say? Probably not this. Listen to his rationale. This is how I have loved you. This is how much I love you. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Remember the twins that were born? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Remember, this is unconditional love. It's not because Jacob was more holy than Esau. But Esau have I hated. Okay, I get it. I know there are people who say that really doesn't mean what it says. It doesn't mean hate, it just means love less. And if you read on, you're going to see how he loved him less. Esau was a castaway, and if that's, love, if that's your definition of 
loved less. Let's just stick with the word hated and let, let it stand. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. Psalm 78 says this, they did not keep God's covenant, listen to this, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. And so here they are, they didn't get it, even though God showed them very, very clearly. Here, here's what he was saying, you were totally undeserving. You were no better than Esau, who sold his birthright, despised his birthright. But I made a sovereign choice out of my elective love to choose you unconditionally. I made that choice. And I would think at that point he might even, if God scratches his head and asks, shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't it be enough? I was thinking of the marriage relationship a minute ago. I, I like, listen, all you women, I, I really like the ones I know and I admire you and all that. But I'm telling you this, I chose this lady. That's a human illustration, but it kind of gets the point across that God's elective love is a relational thing. Let's not get lost in the weeds it is such a wonderful demonstration of how much he loved them and how much he loved us. Well, Paul actually gives a commentary on that in Romans chapter 9. Look at this. There is, oh, what are the benefits? Okay, here's how I've loved you. You can write down Romans 9, 4, and 5. And, and this is not exhaustive. It's just uh, some of the things. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. They got it first. We get it too. But they got it first. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of love. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. And what was the reason? Again, this is the commentary. I said commentary a minute ago. Romans 9, 11 through 13. Although, and, and again, watch this, although they were not yet born, don't get hung up on foreseen faith. This happened before they had faith. They were, they were not born. It had not done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written. Where? Where do you think Paul was reading when he wrote that? Malachi. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. Now, you know, again, the foreseen faith, you can sit right down the reference. We're not going to read all of this. All of you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Where did that faith come from? Was it you? Were you a little bit more faithful than the person sitting next to you? No. It was a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one should boast. God not man, is sovereign in everything. Put a period at the end of that. Not God is sovereign 
in most things, or almost, or yabat. He is sovereign in everything. And you'll, you'll really either believe that God is sovereign or that man is sovereign, or you'll bring it together in this thing called synergism where you believe that somehow both man and God are sovereign. Which do you think the Bible teaches out of Malachi and Romans? Do I have an agenda? I already told you my agenda is to give you an exposition of God's Word as a tool of your own encouragement. Illustrate and try to pull you into God's Word and get God's Word into you so that you will live your life for Him. God is love. That's why you could say, I, I've loved you. But here's the reason why we can love Him back and then we can love each other. We love because He first loved us. That's important. By the way, okay, God can handle your faith-filled question. Does that make sense? I said a minute ago, there are some of you, because of circumstances, you may question God's love. Most of you are going through stuff that I've never even dreamed of going through, and you know God loves you. But there could be some here today that are doing that. God is never, ever put out by your faith-filled questions because he will demonstrate for you his love. You know where he demonstrates it more perfectly, most perfectly? On the cross. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let's look at, at the second, okay? The second thing, am I indifferent to the worship of God? Well, I, I hope you're not indifferent to the love of God. I hope you know now that his love is incredible. He chose you when you didn't have to, when you're undeserving. That ought to put you on your face in your quiet time. It really ought to. Sure did me when I first started understanding this thing called the doctrines of grace. I, I was on my face saying, Lord, why? Why would you choose me? But he, he just heaps it on. Am I indifferent to the worship of God? He has given you and me the marvelous opportunity of worship. From the heart, not just going through the motions. Like some, this is not accusatory. I, I just think in an audience this size, there might have been someone here today and you have just been going through the motions. And if you're a believer, already you've seen, that's not what pleases God. It's not about pleasing me. Who's the audience here? You're not the audience. God is the audience. And he's given to us the great privilege of worshiping him. A son honors, this is in verses 6 and 7, his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, here's another question. They didn't get it. They were blind. They were indifferent. You say, how have we despised your name? He answers, verse 7, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, look at this, a running dialogue. How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, I want you to get a real picture of how that worked. Drop down to the 13th verse and look at what God saw and what he sees some days in 
these days in some churches. Verse 13, but you say, talking about the whole process of worship, from the call to worship, to the music that we sing, to the verses, to the sermon, all the rest of that. And he says, but you say, what a weariness it is. Let me paraphrase that. How boring. I've got some quotes over on the side. If any of you have said, the service so far has been boring, I'm not for boring songs, and I'm not for boring preaching. If that's what I'm doing, then let somebody come in who's not boring. But a lot of times, that statement, I'm bored, has to do more with the person who's bored than with what's going on around them. A couple of quotes over there. I won't take time to lead, but you need to see that. Now, listen to this. They said how weary. It's, it's just boring. And you snort at it. In another translation, you sniff. <sighs> Man, when is this preacher going to finish and we're going to get out of here? That's the attitude that he was dealing with. That's the answer to the question. When you meet with God, do you give him your best? Write down these two slides, these, these verses, 2 Samuel 24, 18 through 25, the story of David. wanting He was seeking a place of offering, an altar upon which the Dome of the Rock, the temple was built. Now the Dome of the Rock is on there. But he basically came to a threshing floor in Aruna, the, the guy that owned it said, take it, take it, take it. And David said this, I'm not going to worship God on the cheap. I'm not going to give to God something that costs me nothing. It's not working for salvation. This is an expression of the worth of God. And by the way, there's gospel. There is gospel just, just, just all through this. But the king said to Aruna, no. I will buy it from you for a price. I think of the blood of Jesus. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Okay, illustration time, illumination time. How many of you know, and it's from a few years back, I know that, the bracelets, maybe you had one, maybe you had a t-shirt that said WWJD. How many of you know what that means? Oh, a lot. Okay, say it with me. What would Jesus do? Little, I was pretty good, a little, little too works oriented for me. I, I, you know, what would Jesus do? And so we're trying to figure out what would he do if he were in this situation? Okay, let me add two more that I've shared with you. It's been way in the past, I think. W-D-I-G. What does that mean? It means the very thing that in the I was going to say the majority. In, I was going to say many. In, in some of the churches in our land, that's why people come in to worship. What do I get? Have a conversation at lunch today 
and, and switch what normally you would say to your kids or to your spouse or whatever. Hey, what did you get out of worship today? And switch it to what God, really, God really wants this W-D-G-G. What do you think that means? What does God get out of my worship? Did you enjoy the worship today? That's the wrong question. Did God remember? Who's the audience here? Am I preaching to the audience? I'm a prompter, and I'm sharing with you the Word of God as a brother in Christ, and we have an audience of one who is looking at our hearts. And the best question you could ask around the dinner table today is not, what did I get but what did God get from my worship today? Church is not a filling station. Well, it is, but secondarily, okay? Church is a place where we come and God is glorified through the sacrifice of praise told you we'd come to that verse. It's Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You think that's just a once-a-week Sunday thing? No. Continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Children, students, are you listening? Continually lift up a sacrifice. I know you don't feel like it. You may not feel like going to bed early on Saturday night so that you can give God your best on Sunday morning, not just the students, but some of us adults. It's a sacrifice of praise. You willingly make. It is no sacrifice. To God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, and then He adds something else. Do not neglect to do good and share with what you have. And then He balls it all up, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. They're pleasing to God. So let me just ask you, do you give him the best hours of your day? I can't tell you what the best hours of your day are. I know what mine are. Is it a sacrifice to get up per, at that particular hour? I, I'm, some may say so. I say not. It's the best time of the day to meet with God. Are you giving him the best hours of your day? Are you giving him any hours of your day? Are you giving him the best years of your life? Do you show that he meets all of your needs by giving to him the first portion of the blessings with which he has blessed you on a regular basis? We're going to talk about that next week. Malachi just chocked full one of the lengthiest passages he gives is on what it means to be a good steward. It's a sacrifice of praise. Are you giving him the best energies of your soul, body, and mind? Or are you giving him, like his complaint to Israel, not the sacrifices, but the scraps, the leftovers? 
Number three, let's get through this so we can get out and see what time it is and beat the Methodist to the cat. Used to be the cafeteria. No lubies today, but wherever you go, Charleston. Am I indifferent to a holy life? Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the... Boy, now this is something. He moves from you feeling weary. Now he says, I'm weary. Wearied by what? Your lack of desire for holiness. I'm wearied with your words. Your words express what's in your heart, right? Didn't Jesus say that? But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, look at this, this is where we are living today. By saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he, the Lord, delights in them. Or the other side of that, you're affirming those who say evil is good. They're okay with God. They're saved, but they can just live any way they want to. But many times Christians go to the other extreme. God, where are you? Do you see what's going on around us? Do you, do you see, Lord? And I, I don't even have time to, to, to tell the things of even this last week that literally, literally would make you want to throw up. These things are being approved. They're, they're not just normalized. They're being celebrated. So one of two responses, he said, and I'm, I'm worn out with you for having the response that you, you're okay with it. Evil is good. And God approves it. Or with you having the attitude that I am unjust for allowing more time for that evil to happen. God has his purposes. Maybe with what we've been talking about in our ABF classes, Adult Bible Fellowship with Witnessing, it's just so a few more of those people can hear the gospel and be saved. So what's the remedy? Three things real quickly. The remedy. Then we're out of here. Wow. The remedy for the Old Testament prophet was very, very He's purifying the church. He's refining the remnant. And here's what he says to do. To them, okay? For I, the Lord, do not change. This is one of the most incredible parts of a verse in the Bible. God says, I don't change. You do, covenant people of God. But because I don't change, you're not destroyed. You're not consumed. Wow. If I tell you I love you, I love you. I'm going to refine you. But I'm not going to reject you. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. And here's the remedy. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That sounds rather Old Testament, so let's bring it up to the New Testament. The last prophet of the Old Testament said that. What did the first prophet of the New Testament say? The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, the last and the greatest of 
all of the prophets, greater than any of them, including Mohammed, speaking to the church, every church that was losing their first love, lukewarm, going through the motions, all the rest of that. Remember, listen to this, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Rejoicing in my love, joy in my love. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Just turn around. Turn from going away from God to pursuing God and His holiness all over again. Would you bow your heads with me? The gospel of repentance starts with being born again, okay? Starts with being born again. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how you start the journey. And I look around and I know most of you are in Christ, you're in the Lord, but there could be some here today that have never come to that realization that you are a sinner before a holy God and all you deserve is hell. But God has made a way, the way in His Son. The gospel is Christ was crucified for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Turn away from sin. Turn to Christ. Begin the journey of faith. Please do that today. And I, I, I will stick around. Others will be here too. And you can maybe ask, hey, how does that work? Don't leave this place without knowing that you have been born again. But if, like the majority of people in this room, you have been born again, you're walking with Jesus, maybe you've stopped along the way. Maybe for whatever reason, you're in that place of going through the motions, mechanical. Daily, week by week, year by year, until the Lord Jesus returns. Repent and follow Him. Father, that is our message. That is the message of the Scripture. It's not our message. It's your message that we proclaim to all people. I thank you for that. I thank you for this dear congregation called Heritage Baptist. I thank you for the desire in so many hearts to follow you. I thank you that you see that. You know us. I pray that if there's anyone who's stopped along the way, for whatever reason, has grown lukewarm, or left their first love, that today would be a day of turnaround, repenting and re-engaging and following you. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here today with fellow believers and worshiping you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.